Today on The Black Goat, what do we really think about p-values? We have it out, finally. And a letter about suppressing research findings when they conflict with your morals. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Alexa Tullett and Samin Vizier. And it's fall term, and this is when a lot of new faculty are going to their first faculty meeting ever. And uh, when I went to my very first faculty meeting ever, I was excited because I was like, this is like a grown-up thing. I get to (laughs) finally do this thing that, you know, where I went to grad school, grad students were never allowed in faculty meetings. And it was like, this is kind of cool. And everybody looked at me like I had three heads, and that feeling went away very quickly. Were you guys excited mm-hmm. the first time you went to a faculty meeting? No, I don't remember, but I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure, actually. Probably, I think that actually the first few faculty meetings that I went to, and this hasn't completely gone away, um, I actually thought were more fun than I anticipated because there are just some people in my department who are really funny. And so like, mm-hmm. uh, I spend sort of half of faculty meetings zoning out and then a quarter paying attention and then a quarter laughing at the funny people. So it's not so bad (laughs) on balance. I'm actually skipping a faculty meeting right now to do this recording. (laughs) (laughs) I hope they won't find out for two weeks. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I I just had a faculty meeting. Oh, you just did. You just had one. Yeah. And I'm on sabbatical actually, but I went because it was tenure cases and, uh, it's interesting because, you know, I was just thinking about incentive structures and stuff. And there were two tenure cases we had and we had like an hour to get through them. So it's not very much time. And so then like when people bring up things and I think the framing is actually problematic, like in this case, someone was talking about a grant and they were saying, it's great. Look how much money they brought in. And I was like, Shh. I, so I raised my hand and I was like, it's impressive that they got a grant given how hard it is to get a grant. And they got a really good score on their grant. Like their peers obviously think very highly of the work they want to do, but it's not the dollar amount that's impressive it's the, the like peer review part of it and things like that but I knew I was just wasting everyone's time like that's a minor detail but I was like if we want to change the incentive structure we have to like take up time in these like crammed meetings so I don't know I don't know what the answer is I don't <laughs> it feels like a waste of time but then every in- tiny little bit of trying to change how people frame things feels like a waste of time right yeah I know what you mean um I, ha- I think I have quite a, well, a fairly high bar for um, when I should talk in faculty meetings, um, probably because I have a, I negatively judge people who talk a lot in faculty meetings. So, yeah. um, but I agree that that's, yeah, sometimes that's like your only opportunity. Yeah. You know, we, we tend to, we only have faculty meetings when we need to, so we don't have like a standing like every week at this time we're going to meet no matter what blah 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 so our, our faculty meetings actually in in my department in contrast to the cliche they tend to usually be like there's something important and and we're dealing with it but I think one of the I mean what you're highlighting Samin is like we don't um we don't have a lot like when we have to work out what are our values for example these kind of value judgment questions they're always in the context of a particular case. We don't ever, you know, I shouldn't say we don't ever. It's it's unusual for us to sit back and say, like, how much do we care about grants mm-hmm. and why do we care about grants and whatever in the abstract. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's in the context of a particular case. Um, and, you know, it's good and bad, I think, that, you know, like, because oftentimes when you're dealing with something in the context of a particular case, you're not actually talking about the principle. You're sort of using the principle to say, look, I basically like this person. So this criterion that maybe I wouldn't defend on its own, I'm going to sort of argue in their favor. Um, uh, Yeah. So so but it's hard because when we I mean, we do sometimes and we had a program review a couple of years ago and we went on a retreat um, and, you know, and we did talk about some of these bigger issues, but sometimes it's just you kind of figure out, especially when they're like values questions, it's like. Yep, you think this is important and I don't, and I don't think we're going to convince each other. But I also think like when the values talk is separate, like it's at a retreat and not in the context of specific cases, it might not translate. So I think, I don't know what the answer is. Like it almost feels like we have to like pause in the middle of a specific case and be like, okay, now let's talk about our values and then let's apply that right now. 
Because otherwise it's easy to like say one thing in the abstract and do something else in the concrete case. Tell me more about these retreats. I've never <laughs> been on a retreat. <laughs> You're so lucky. <laughs> We've had one in the, I guess, whatever, 14 years I've been here. So we do, um, it's actually three things, but they all get bundled at the same time. Or Well, we did three things that were bundled at the same time. So one was an internal program review where we write a report um we sort of look at everything that we do and the university requires us to do that every 10 years i think um although i'm i think the previous one we were, we were out of cycle anyway the the second part of it which is pretty closely linked but it's a little bit different is an external review so you have people from outside the department they come they spend a few days they meet people they also read the the report that you created but they also prepare their own report, sort of how are you doing? And then an optional part that we decided to do in conjunction with those was to have a retreat where we kind of talked about bigger picture, sort of like what do we want our department to be? What are our priorities? What are the issues, the things we could do better at, et cetera? So that was kind of like our process. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. We had one and we had an external paid person who made us play with play-doh it was like all the cliches <laughs> <I'm> like... <laughs> uh, yeah we had somebody facilitate our retreat but it wasn't playing with play-doh it was like pretty it was pretty substantive like we talked about things like we need to do better one you know one of the things we want to do better at is mentoring and so you know there was a lot of discussion about how can we like improve our, our faculty peer to peer, you know, more senior to less senior as well as same stage kind of support. And, and we're doing a lot of stuff to try to improve that now. So there were a few things like that that came out of it. Yeah, apparently we also the, had some substantive stuff. I'm painting too yeah. negative of a picture, but. Apparently at the previous review, so I don't think there was a retreat, but at the review, one of the things that everybody was complaining about was that our building was in really terrible shape. And so <laughs> apparently like the entire report that they produced out of that was just like, here's this thing we're trying to do, and but our building sucks and it's holding us back. Here's this other thing we're trying to do, but our building sucks and it's holding <laughs> us back. I could do and a my, whole episode my... on how much my building sucks, and I would be oh, your so... building sucking, and I'm 100% really? sure about that. <laughs> well, yes. now we got a new building. Do you, do you so, have raw so sewage it... on the floor of your bathrooms? <laughs> um, we we had uh, we we did have that in our old building. Yes, it would wow. happen. We also so this is a for anybody listening. This is a genius thing that Marjorie Taylor, who was department head when we were trying to get the new building, did um, was that the building had a roach problem. And so she put a giant glass jar on her desk and she told everybody, if you find a dead roach, bring it to my office and put it in the jar. <laughs> and then when, when the report was done and she went to meet with whoever the powers that be to say, look, we need our building remodeled or, or changed or whatever, she walked in there and set the jar down on the table and then started speaking. And apparently like this was this like <laughs> legendary moment. And they're like, Okay, okay, we'll give you your new building. That's a great idea. I, <laughs> as what do you we do speak, about the poop I, on the floor in the bathroom? I think the answer is obvious. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> yeah, that does seem like a really obvious connection. Um, yeah, as we speak, there's a roach in the hall outside of my office. I just keep walking past it. <laughs> <laughs> Get a jar. I, uh, you could be the first. <laughs> my house is a block from this like building, and so whenever we have guest speakers or really anyone who needs to use the bathroom, I tell them to come to my house. Oh, geez. That's how bad it is. Yeah. When your department chair someday, you'll just yeah, have right. a jar of poop on your desk. <laughs> that's how I'll avoid becoming department chair. I'll say that's what I would do if I was department chair. Uh, Cool. Well, should we uh, should we read our letter? Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, dear TBG, at a recent conference, a famous researcher described how earlier in they, their career, they had decided to suppress some of their research out of fear that the results would be used to further political or moral agendas they didn't agree with. I personally agreed with the researcher's political stance, but their decision made me uncomfortable. Was this behavior an admirable sacrifice, as the researcher seemed to believe, or shirking of their responsibility uh, to truth as a scientist. Thanks, conflicted conference goer. So it's shirking. Um, should we move on to the main topic? <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I would be willing to argue the opposite. Mm, maybe not totally the opposite, <laughs> but 
I, I wouldn't say, I guess like I wouldn't say 100% no matter what. Uh, it becomes more complicated with pre-registration because I don't think that I would pre-register a hypothesis. Okay, so like let's take something like um, I went, I did my undergrad career or, uh, degree at Western University um, and Philippe Rushton was a professor there and he did uh, research on gender differences in IQ. Um, it's hard for me to imagine like pre-registering a hypothesis about gender differences in IQ and I mean, I haven't totally thought this through as an example, but I can imagine not being interested in publishing research on gender differences in IQ. Um, but being interested and, enough to do it, but not publish it? Well, I guess that's where I think like the the situation is different now than it maybe was when this person is talking about it. So uh, I guess I I guess I am not sure what the person's intention was and what they'd found. Um, maybe they found like the opposite of what they thought that they would find and that they didn't like that. Um, but I can certainly imagine finding something that I wasn't particularly interested in reporting. I mean, I think we do that all the time, right? Or at least I do with like my data sets with thousands of variables. There's a lot of right. stuff that pops up that I don't pursue. I don't publish. There's a lot of stuff I even like have students present as posters <clears throat> that we never publish or things like that. So we, we kind of have to pick and choose which things we put all the work in to publish. So right. that makes it really easy to justify. Right. Like I could imagine, I mean, my work doesn't have a lot of moral angles to it, but I could imagine if it did like something that I wasn't even looking for, but it was part of like a correlation matrix or something like that and being like, whoa, and then just being like, well, I wasn't going to publish that anyway, and no way am I going to wade into that minefield. Right. I guess I could, that, even though that doesn't sound great to me, I think I, I could easily do something like that. Not yeah, that I should, I, but I think it I would agree. Happen. It doesn't sound great to me either, but I, yeah, it's easy to imagine. Yeah. I, so I'm, I'm going to make a couple assumptions from the way the, the letter was worded. So, because there are some cases where I think, it's okay to to not report something that are general cases that would you know certainly apply to to you know to this to to having a result that disagreed with your values or politics or whatever you know one mm -hmm. one would be if something about the results made you doubt the evidentiary value of it and so you were you know a manipulation check fails there's a you know an indication the protocol didn't work as planned blah 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 and and maybe it's not black and like maybe if it's black and white you're just like oh i don't publish it all maybe it's in the gray zone but you're like well this is going to be misunderstood people aren't going to attach enough uncertainty to it whatever i i could see like a shade of gray there mm -hmm. um and you know another case would be maybe this is kind of what you were talking about samin you're doing an exploratory analysis and in some sense it's very similar where you see a result pop out in the data you weren't going in there looking for it and it's uh um and you're like, oh, this would be problematic, but because I'm in an exploratory mode, I'm I'm not that confident in any way. And and you know, maybe like of all the things I could follow up on, this is not one. Again, I th you know I think there's versions of that that are better or worse, but I think there's some of that's acceptable. But at least the the way I read it is is the the letter is they're saying suppress some of their research out of fear that the results would be mm -hmm. used to further political moral agendas they didn't agree with. And so I'm sort of attaching a like ceteris paribus assumption to that, that if if it weren't the, that fear of how it would be used, that it would have been considered publishable. And, and that's where, um, I mean, that, that, that is where I think pre-registration and especially registered reports are designed to keep us, to make it harder to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that the, and this, this relates a lot to what we talked about last episode about public trust in science that I, I think the, the the public's trust in what we're telling them comes from us making these arguments of the form of you know I'm I'm going to like I'm going to be transparent I'm not you're not supposed to believe me because like I'm a fancy scientist and I'm important you're supposed to believe me because I'm an honest broker and because I'm transparent about what I find um, and so I guess in, if I'm really sort of reading the strongest version of this letter with that kind of, you know, all else held equal assumption, I, it's hard for me to 
I mean, I could probably, if I sit and think about it long enough, think of some examples, but it's pretty hard for me to think of why this is, like, cases where this is okay in line with other things I think science should do. Yeah, I agree. And the, like, kind of prototypical case that this letter makes you imagine, I agree that it's not okay. And and I, I think it's a pretty clear letter in that respect. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I guess what I'm saying is I'm assuming that the researcher themselves believes the result mm-hmm. or believes the uh, believes the believes and was interested in the question. Right. It wasn't yeah, like something that yeah, stumbled yeah. upon. Important, isn't. Yeah. Like I could definitely imagine walking away from a result that would be controversial that I wouldn't have published if it had come out a different way because it wasn't something I was interested in. And then I like stumble on something controversial and then I'm like, yeah, well, I wasn't going to go there anyway. And now I have another reason not. In my case, I think it would just be like the amount of work it takes to deal with uh, things that get a lot of attention. Yeah. So if it's not something I'm interested in or I was looking for or like I have an, like particular expertise in. So, yeah, I think here we're assuming both that the researcher believes the result, but also that it's like their main, that it's really the topic they were looking at and that kind of thing. Are, are we assuming that it's the topic that they were interested in, but the answer is not the answer that they thought they would find? Yeah, something like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, um, no, I, I agree. Like, I think when it's, when it's like a, a noti- noticeable finding, but not your main reason for doing it. But, I, you know, I think that starts to bring in legitimate uncertainty because yeah. then it's not something you it, – then it starts to be a more exploratory question. Yeah. I mean, that kind of reminds me of the – phenomenon where you're reading a paper and you see something that is wrong or you know careless or something like that and then you're like well now I have this knowledge and maybe other people didn't see it do I have a responsibility to publish that or to post that somewhere and things like that so it's like when you have knowledge that you weren't looking for but nobody else has or possibly nobody else has and it would correct the record if you shared it like how much time and resources do you have to invest do you have a responsibility to invest in sharing that knowledge yeah yeah that's an interesting question maybe for a future podcast yeah <laughs> but yeah I yeah agree I that mean, in I the case the... of this specific letter i think it's shirking responsibility yeah again with the the sort of the strongest reading of the the situation so mm-hmm. yeah i mean i i think about like certain kinds of i mean i'm trying to think of examples um, so certain kinds of group differences, gender differences, yeah. race, ethnicity differences, where you might notice them in your data. But th- there, I think very often it's it's not that this is, you know, those are super hard to interpret. And so, so you know, when, when those come up, often it's that, well, I know there's some people that are going to take this and yeah. run with it with a wrong still, interpretation. So actually that happened to and me so if, once. so if I'm going to publish this, I, I need to do it justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but that's different than, th- in that case, it's not it's not against my morals or principles. It's just, it's like, no, I know there's a right way to interpret this, but I would need to do these extra studies but or whatever to, to put it out there in the world responsibly. That, not, that feels well, different okay. than what the letter But imagine, about. so this happened to me once. I had a study and IQ was one of the variables. And uh, we just ran, looked at gender differences in all our variables that we were reporting, but it wasn't our, our main question. And we did find a gender difference in measured IQ in our study uh, with women scoring lower than men. And I think that we were planning on reporting the gender differences in like descriptives anyway, and we did. So it's in, mm-hmm. I think it might be in a footnote, but it's in there. And if we had suppressed it, whereas we were planning, like if, if the decision depended on the outcome, then like meta-analyses that often rely on results like that that are not the main focus of the paper would be really mm-hmm. biased. So even though it's relatively easy to justify being like, this isn't our research question. I have no idea if it's a real difference. People might overinterpret it, blah, blah. It's also risky to do that because that's how meta-analyses, on, especially on things like gender differences that are often side results of papers, mm-hmm. get biased. Yeah. I can think of another example that I think falls into the category Sanjay was talking about, about um, like instances where you just need to be sort of careful about how the result is conveyed, um, which is like I have had friends who have results that look at basically like correlations between neurological measures and things like prejudice. Um, And sometimes I think there's a concern, and this I think does happen, that this gets taken as evidence that like prejudice is like in the brain somehow and it like naturalizes prejudice or something like that. Um, And yeah, in that case, I think it's obvious that, um, that 
the fact that people could take that research and use it for political ends that the researcher might not agree with, um, that it doesn't make sense to not report those things as a strategy for reducing that kind of problem. Like that's just, I think it just like increases the onus to explain what those results actually mean. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the, um, right. If, if you, if you think that they would be, and, and maybe this is what the letter writer meant, cause you know, I'm reading a lot into the letter. If, if it's that, well, I wouldn't even agree with that conclusion myself, but I know that other people would misinterpret it and run with it. Um, I think that, I think that is a tougher case because yeah, like what, you know, what Samin was saying is about, you know, that you you might be keeping something out of the literature that you know in a meta analysis would show on average there's no bias you know or no difference or whatever you know whatever it's going to show it's going to show but that that you're sort of keeping it out cuz so you know that other people are interested in this question and even though you're not or you didn't set out to do it um, and you know I think in Alexa your case the the sort of like people reaching the wrong it, it's kind of similar and yeah I mean I think it's I, th- I think those are tougher judgment calls because I, I do think that when we put information out there we that that could connect to these issues we have to talk about it responsibly but and, that's not an excuse yeah. not to do that I agree that you have to like put in extra caveats and extra be extra explicit about what it doesn't mean in those cases where it's like it's not the finding itself that you think is problematic it's the way people are going to interpret it I don't I think it's not okay to suppress it for that reason. Even if you know for sure people are going to misinterpret it, I still think you have to put it out there and do everything you can to be clear about what the right and wrong interpretations are. I remember right when I was starting grad school there was a paper that came out, I think an American psychologist that found that um people who had been sexually abused as children, they looked at the long-term correlates with like psychological well-being. I might be getting some details wrong. And I think they found that within a certain age range, if the abuse happened in a certain age range, they didn't find evidence of uh, long-term effects on psychological well-being or depression or something like that. But then in another age range, it did. Um, and there was like a huge controversy over whether they should have published the results. And what I saw of the controversy was not about the validity of the result. It was about mm-hmm. whether it was irresponsible to publish it even if it was solid or like and and presented mm-hmm. very accurately with caveats on all the appropriate uncertainties, which I think it was, but I might be misremembering. But let's pretend that there was a case like that where you find that childhood sexual abuse doesn't have long-term negative impacts under some circumstances. And you don't, you are very, very careful to say this has nothing to do with the morality of, of sexually abusing children. It has no... You know, it doesn't say anything about that. It's not a moral question. Um, should you not publish that? I think, you think even if you know it's going to be used that way, I think you should publish it. Hmm. Yeah. I wonder if there are also cases where. So I think I think it is clear what the right thing to do is in a case where you had a particular research question and the finding is an answer to that research question. Um, I think that maybe there are times when there's an answer to a research question that wasn't necessarily your main research question and you don't think it's the right question to ask when you're trying to like evaluate a particular political or moral issue, but you know that many people do ask that question or wonder about, about that when they're evaluating that. Mm-hmm. Um, that would make a lot more sense if I had a specific example like I don't know I guess like for instance maybe heritability studies um they sort of like could get interpreted as um providing evidence that something is like totally out of one's control I'm, I'm getting a little out of my depth here but I guess if you think that like a particular piece of evidence is not the way that you should evaluate a question mm-hmm. like about personal responsibility yeah. or something like that but then you know it will be used but then that's that? a that's a validity issue right then it's a construct validity <clears throat> okay. issue so you're okay you wouldn't present it with the label of the construct that you think it doesn't measure or you know so i think yeah, that I, I think that's true yeah i mean it, there's a blurry line between validity issues and interpretation issues but i think when yeah. it's clearly on the interpretation side i don't think it's okay to suppress it yeah, maybe that's too mm-hmm. simplistic. 
This is, this feels like a very unsatisfying answer to this question. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's a really good question. Yeah. Yeah. Are we are we <laughs> are we okay with ending on unsatisfying? Uh I don't think I'm going to get any better than that. Okay. All right. Well, uh thank you conflicted conference goer um for giving us something to be conflicted about. Uh and if you if you would like an unsatisfying answer to an interesting question, uh, <laughs> you, you can email us uh, letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. dot uh, com. You can we love to hear from people. Uh, Twitter is a great way to interact with us at blackgoatpod. We're on Facebook, facebook dot com slash blackgoatpod. We're on Instagram, instagram.com slash blackgoatpod, and our website is www.theblackgoatpodcast.com. And thank you to everyone who listens, everyone who sends us letters, interacts, subscribes, tells friends, just listens, all that. We, we really appreciate that, so thank you. All right, so for our main topic today, we wanted to talk about p-values, and I think the you know, there's a lot of issues with p-values. I think we, it's kind of, I I think, I feel like this started maybe as like a half joke, like when we were brainstorming Mm -hmm. topic ideas, we're like, what do we really think about p-values anyway? And then it was sort of like, well, maybe we should talk about that uh, someday anyhow. So we managed um, to put it off for a long time. I know. (laughs) I'm kind of surprised that was like in our original brain brainstorm list, but so, there, I mean, there's a lot of things to talk about with p-values. Maybe a good place to start um, is the issue of dichotomization, right? So one of the criticisms people sometimes make about p-values is that they're used in this dichotomous decision-making process. There's debates about whether they ought to be used dichotomously. Some people say use them continuously. But certainly in, in practice, we see you know, journals and, and other, you know, and individual scientists sort of making kind of a, you know, a thresholded decision at usually P equals 0.05. Um, so is dichotomization always terrible, sometimes terrible? I have a question for you guys, which is related, which is that for, if you're talking about a a given finding, so like something that you can report one P value for, how many mental categories do you think you have in terms of truth value for mm-hmm. findings? Because I kind of I kind of think that I have two. Maybe if I'm being generous, I have three. Really? I think I have four. Okay. What about you, Sanjay? <laughs> what are the four? Oh, it's it's infinity for me. <laughs> yeah, right. It's <laughs> so <guy>. noble. <laughs> <laughs> Um, my four roughly are like 0. 0.01, 0. 0.05, 0. 0.10, but like but with like, some wiggle room. So, I mean, maybe it depends on how you ask that question exactly. So when you're evaluating papers, I assume that's what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, but I mean more like how you store information about an effect. Yeah, I guess then it's probably two. Uh, maybe three. I think yeah, there are some I'm, where I'm genuinely like huh yeah like now i i've like started to wonder if there is an effect but i haven't concluded that there is mm-hmm. right um yeah so the- but that's usually not because of the p-value usually it's like it might be a very small p-value but there were other things about the study that made me want to see like a tweak on it or something like that uh-huh so, so i guess I i'm think sort of comes- wondering about that because yeah i mean i think I feel like p-values and thresholds get a bad rap because the the argument is that they're like forcing us into this dichotomous thinking. But I also, I mean, I think that might map on to a pretty natural way we have of thinking about findings, um, which might make it harder to get away from a threshold or from a dichotomous system. Um, But... I don't know. Or, maybe there's, or, it's I guess possible it's to like, have different systems at different stages, and maybe maybe there are a lot of Sanjays out there who are capable of more. <laughs> who are, who are full of shit. I'm going to be idealistic for once, and I'm going to say I think people can handle three categories, and maybe I even could, four. I can. So I don't think categories. that what's like strong in humans is dichotomous thinking. I think it's categorical thinking. 
Yeah. But I think, I mean, I think there's a really important larger point, Alexa, behind what you're making, which is that I think one of, you know, if we're going to, if how we're going to remember it later is going to be sorted into two or even a few categories, then there's actually something, you know, we're going to remember it later on as, and, and I think especially once, if you're just taking the results part of that, because there, you know, I, when I think of like, what are my mental categories, it includes things like, oh, that design was bullshit. And so mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what the results mm-hmm. showed. But mm-hmm. if I just take the results variance in my categories, it might be two, it might be three. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you're going to be sorting things into two or three categories, why not have a statistical procedure that does that in a principled way rather than saying smash dichotomies, but then later on I'm going to remember it dichotomously. But then what what sorts it into the dichotomies later? Well, it's going to be my other biases. Did I like the study or not or whatever? You know, right. Did I like the question? Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, yeah. And so, so if you're going to dichotomize or trichotomize or whatever, I think there is a pretty good argument to say, well, let's do it in a principled way. Mm-hmm. I just feel I feel like I'm gonna this is gonna be bother me until I clarify. So I don't actually like look at a p values and be like put it in those four bins. I was just trying yeah. to estimate what I implicitly do. I don't yeah. actually I'm like oh if it's point oh oh nine it's great and if it's point oh one two then it's not yeah yeah of course right. but. Mm-hmm. but I think about like so so something that we don't have so so one of the one of the things that produces this dichotomization is that we. You know, there's a consensus, there's a norm that P less than 0.05 is one kind of thing and P greater than 0.05 is another. And, and you know, we can all protest that oh, we're deeply nuanced thinkers, but I think that affects a lot of our thinking. Um, but, you know, when I think about like another domain where there's less of a strong norm, um, which is effect size interpretation. So there certainly there are, you know there's Cohen's fav- famous benchmarks and there's things mm-hmm. like that. But I, if you were to ask me when I'm like reading a study and focused on the effect size, and you ask me a week or a month later on, oh, what do you think of that? I probably am mentally binning that too into like big enough to matter, and I'm probably in my memory. I, I think I'm combining that with like my significance or significance-ish judgment, and I'm saying there was an effect and it was meaningful. There was an effect, but it was kind of trivial. There was an effect, but the sample is so small that, you know, you don't know what the effect size is or there was no effect, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, if I were to sort of, like, sort my memory into bins, there's probably a pretty small number of bins that way, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's that's something think... where, you know, but in the moment I'm making, I'm looking at those effect sizes Initially, they're continuous, but then I'm sort of, yeah, as I'm trying to make sense of them, I'm attaching them to these more kind of, you know, either sharp categories or prototypical categories of, of sort of like meaningful effect, trivial effect, no effect. Right. Maybe, um, maybe one disadvantage Oh, and also of... too big to believe. That's yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe one disadvantage of relying on like a statistical system that we all use to do the principled binning is that then uh, you don't have a choice as the interpreter about, I mean, you do if you're like reading a paper, but um, about how you sort of like want to define your own thresholds. So I'm thinking of like, as an example, like if you're looking at Rotten Tomatoes or something like that, as a, a viewer of Rotten Tomatoes, you're given a score out of 100, right? And you could have like a high cutoff or a low cutoff. Um, and so you might still like categorize movies into good or bad, but you might be like picky or not picky. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas like with P values, you're sort of forcing everybody to have the same cut off. And the argument in the redefined paper, which I was an author on is that we haven't been being picky enough. We've been swiping right right too much and not swiping (laughs) left enough. But it's interesting, Sanjay, when you were talking about effect sizes, I was like, for me, those are like really different. I'm in different mindsets when I'm thinking about p-values versus effect sizes. I know that they're related to each other, et cetera. But like, and I feel like I would like to get to a point where I trust statistics that we run in our data enough to like really care about effect sizes. But I find that it's rare when I'm reading a paper that I get past the first stage, which is, is this signal or is this noise? Mm Mm-hmm. And I would only interpret the effect size if I'm convinced that it's signal and not noise mining. Um, mm-hmm. So it's interesting to like, I don't know. I get uncomfortable even paying attention to the effect sizes if, if it doesn't pass that first test. Mm-hmm. 
That's interesting. I, um, I'm, I think, well, yeah, I think of interpreting effect sizes that that could be another episode. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, cause yeah, I, I, you know, I'm in, I've tried to really over the years force myself into a habit of always looking at effect sizes. And I think that's a way to start to form intuitions and judgments. So when you see a new one, you have these heuristics and you have this experience that gives you, and I think maybe that's one of the reasons dichotomization is handy is that you can be totally unfamiliar with a domain. And if you have a yes, no criterion, it gives you at least a feeling of clarity. So also, And, and I think with continuous measures, you it's harder to sort of quickly have that clear sense that but, I know what's going on here. But let's say we trained somebody to read the literature and ignore p-values and just look at effect sizes, but it was a literature like ours where getting p less than 0.05 is a pretty strong selection filter on what gets published. So then they're getting like, the, so if they didn't know to look at p-values or something like that, the, the thing on which things are being selected, they might not notice that there's a bunch of effect sizes that are just past the critical value that would make it significant. And if they knew that, they might interpret those effect sizes really differently, right? So like if, you know, in a study with... Yeah, but that's that's also true of how they interpret the p-values. Right, right. Knowing that, but yeah. So I mean, I'm not sure assuming an unsophisticated reader tells you much about the value of well, a sophisticated reader maybe I'm, interpreting maybe I'm, effect sizes. And, yeah. Maybe I'm not explaining it right. But like, I guess I'm imagining someone taking the effect size at face value without being aware that there's a selection happening on a critical effect size that would be the just significant effect size, right? And and if they knew that that selection was happening, they would not just take the effect size at face value. Mm-hmm. So if you're taking yeah, that into I'm, account, yeah. then you're doing what I'm saying of like also asking yourself like, wait, if it's just past that threshold or if, there, if there's signs that, you know, they were trying to get just past that threshold, like flexibility in data analysis, then I'm going to interpret the, that same absolute effect size very differently than if there weren't signs of like them getting it just past that threshold. Yeah, for sure. And and I think that part of getting good at effect size interpretation is learning to to recognize not only when there's a p-value thresholding selection, but also mm-hmm. that other kinds of if you just pick the ten largest effect sizes, those are going to be upward upwardly right. biased right, too. Right. And it, even if you didn't look at at p-values, and so so I think yeah, understanding when you're way of looking at effect sizes or the way they come to you has biases in it that's yeah yeah, that's definitely an important part of it yeah um yeah so you were saying sanjay that like if you're gonna be making dichotomous ish decisions or categorical decisions anyway why not do it in a principled way so i think the next question is is a p-value the right principle or is it like (laughs) (laughs) so is so i was thinking about this i'm teaching a replicability seminar right now and so i show them the two by two table of nhst and i say you know when we're living in the world where the null is true then alpha is the probability of getting a significant effect and when we're living in the world where the alternative hypothesis is true then beta is the probability of making a type 2 error and i tell them like those probabilities you have to start with the assumption of what world you live in. And so then I'm trying to think like, okay, so p-value is conditional on like, if we were living in this world, this is a chance that we would get this result or greater. And people often say like, that's the wrong question. That's not the question we want to know the answer to. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, like it tells me something. Yeah. I mean, if, if I could know the answer to which world do I live in, I would rather know that, but Mm -hmm. it tells me something, right? Like, like if you're dreaming and you're trying to figure out if you're dreaming and you say, okay, well, I just flew. If I was not dreaming, what are the chances that I would be flying? <laughs> like in that case, it's zero. Yeah. And so it doesn't work because it's not probabilistic, but still zero? you could imagine. What's that? Nothing. Uh, like flying without a plane. <laughs> like, but let's say, let's say like <laughs> I'm like dreaming that I'm a rock star. Okay. And then I'm like, okay, am I dreaming or am I not dreaming? Well, if I was not dreaming, the probability of this would be like 0.0000001. So I'm probably dreaming, right? And it's that's mm-hmm. basically the logic of p-values, right? And I think mm-hmm. I would use that logic. Like, I don't think it's, like, completely fabricated and not intuitive. So so let me... Uh, I feel like you're you're actually starting to present the case for justify your alpha, which is... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so for, for people who aren't familiar with this, just maybe a really quick background for people listening. So there was a yeah. series of papers that came out um, the first one was called Redefining Statistical Significance. Samin was a co-author on it, and it proposed, and I won't get into the arguments, which they might come up when we're talking, but it, it proposed saying significant should now be P less than 0.005, 
anything between 005 and regular old-fashioned 05 which should be called suggestive and then everything else is nonsense so that was kind of the the gist of it there's a paper called justify your alpha which said that for made the argument that it was kind of a response rejoinder to just to to the Samin, the paper that Samin was on that said for each analysis for each study you should define and provide a justification for an alpha level that is particular to that research question and that you're engaged in um, and then there was another paper uh what all i remember is the the acronym was ass uh, <laughs> because it was everyone was calling abandoned, it rss and abandoned jye statistical abandoned statistical significance yeah that, that was jennifer tackett and andrew gelman and some other people um, that that sort of anyway, but so that, that's the sort of background. But so the the justify your alpha argument, I think, uh, um, is kind of it's kind of what you're saying. They're saying like take these error rates seriously, right? They're saying take the idea that what you're doing with alpha and beta, and it could have mm-hmm. be just as easily be called justify your beta or justify your alpha and your right. beta, right? They're mm-hmm. saying, you know, the whole idea of Nyman Pearson hypothesis testing is you're defining these different kinds of error mm-hmm. rates. And you're supposed to do some kind of a cost-benefit analysis of like how bad it would how bad would it be if there's an effect and I miss it? How bad it would it be if there's no effect but I think there is? Right. You you set your alpha and your beta based on those how bad would it be considerations, and then you you do your test based on that. And so if you're if you're like look I if there's any chance at all that I'm actually a rock star I really don't want to miss out and assume that I'm dreaming then you set one alpha and if you're like I don't want to make a fool of myself that I think I'm a rock star but I'm really not then I, you set your other one and whatever right so that that's the argument yeah. that's also the and, letter yeah. writer's problem too you can just like choose an alpha that makes it really likely that you'll conclude the thing that's right. consistent with your <laughs> political views. No, I mean, I think that, I think that, I mean, the political thing is obviously complicated, but I think that's sort of the idea of it, right? As you say, going in, yeah. like, it's kind of this, how bad would it be? I think yeah. my, so I think, I, I mean, I think it's a really interesting argument. I think my, my problem or my difficulty with it all along was that the, the justify your part wasn't spelled out in the paper. And mm. I think the easy part is like, if you have some, concrete like quantitative cost and benefit then you can sort of turn that into an error rate um but if it's just this subjective like oh it would feel bad to miss this or it would feel good to miss that the the sort of the value part of like the calculating given a set of values is possible but the like how do you assign an error rate to i don't want to miss this um was was really unclear in the paper yeah, and I mean, but, if, but I think if it was—I think it was a really good argument to engage with, anyway. My my best argument against Justify Your Alpha is that it's hard even for those authors, and I have a lot of respect for those authors. So then, take your average person publishing a paper who just who isn't going to think deeply about alpha and beta and these trade-offs and things like that—they're going to do a terrible job of justifying their alpha. So my problem with it isn't philosophical; it's much more practical. I would love to live in a world where everybody justified their alpha and where everybody thought very th- clearly about their sample size ahead of time and their error rates and all of this stuff. I just don't Is there a way to world. create pretty simplistic guidelines for justifying your alpha? Like, But then you'd get back to, that's what we did. We said, you know, use 0.005 for like high certainty and use 0.05 for like, so I mean, yeah. in a way I feel the, like redefined right. statistical significance was a case of justifying your alpha. We were like, <laughs> okay, let's look at our alpha. Let's see if it's justified. It, we don't think it's justified. So we're going to redefine right. it. To a better right. So and I, it's not a great justification in four point oh five. I don't. I think a lot of the authors actually don't really like that either. We're just arguing it's way better than 0.05. So let's justify better, right? We were our field was justifying 0.05. It wasn't like completely. There was it wasn't the case that there's no defense for it. People defended it and mm-hmm. it made good defenses for it. So I think we're like saying, well, no, we think there's an alpha with a better justification. Um, but I think. But- uh, there's an extra layer, which I mean, you can easily fit into the three bins that you're talking about, which is that sometimes maybe like being in suggestive territory is a pretty big deal. And other times it's like pretty unremarkable, yeah. right? Depending right, on the right. question. Or but that's true in general. Like there's some yeah. effects that yeah. are interesting and important and some that aren't. So that's always been part of what you have to justify in your yeah. paper. Yeah, um, true. So I want to I want to put out an argument that I think is a little bit more 
even more radical. So I was sort of trying to make, I hope in good faith, make the case for justify your alpha. But I, I want to go make an argument in the opposite direction. I'm curious what, what you two think about it. Because I've thought of this, and I'm not 100% sure how much I buy this, but I think there's some value to it, which is, here's the argument, is that there is value in having an agreed upon standard at all. So this is like the value of a norm, the value of having some kind of a norm. And like you can quickly shoot this down by saying, well, what if we all agreed P less than 0.95 was the norm? And, and you're like, yeah, okay. So within the realm of like reasonable people, et cetera, the, you know, the argument being that like science is a collective enterprise and we have to have a common language for saying like, what results are we provisionally going to move forward with? What are we not? Um, and if we were, if we had a, so maybe this is just an argument for like some kind of dichotomization or thresholding versus none at all, which is that it at least gives us something to talk about. And we can debate whether it should be higher or lower, and we can discuss when we want to make, let people make principled objections or something. But in the same way that like you can't play a game with somebody without agreeing on the rules beforehand. And for right. games, the rules are almost by definition arbitrary. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying this isn't a game where the rules are purely arbitrary because they're for our entertainment. There needs to be some kind of collective judgment. What's a sort of generally wise ballpark to be in? But then once you do that, and it's not clear exactly, should it be this or should it be that? There's additional value for the collective task of all coming to an agreement or at least all moving in some kind of a general rough same direction of having something, anything within the reasonable range that we can all just agree on and not have to argue over every time. Yeah. And to some extent, peer review depends on that, because I think if it was like really anything goes, you can use any, you know, model of evidence to make your case and whatever. I mean... To some extent, you can. You can try. But I think it becomes much, much harder for others to vet your work the less we have in common about what we're going to agree as our approach and our standards and our norms. Yeah, I mean, I think I would agree with everything that you said. Uh, Are you saying that – are you arguing for, um, like, one standard that everyone shares? Or are you arguing that we should choose – 0.05 0.05 because that's common across fields. I'm actually not sure how common 0.05 is across fields. Yeah, you know, nobody wrote the in defense of 0.05 paper. I feel like that <laughs> could be my, that that could be my niche. <laughs> that could be like my thing in this debate. No, no, I I think um, I mean it's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I, so I think part of part of what was really appealing to a lot of people about justify your alpha is it's kind of it's this meta argument that's like we're scholars, we're supposed to be thinking about things, we shouldn't be like outsourcing the thinking to a default, or, a you know, like, we should think through this really important mm-hmm. aspect of our work. And in some sense, this is like my sort of hot take counter argument, which is like, there's sometimes there's value in agreeing not to get caught up on something and saying, you know what, there's a good enough and there's a, and it's a consensus that we all agree to buy into so we can you know, both for efficiency's sake, not waste our time, but also just sort of move on to other things. Mm-hmm. Right. It's funny because um, the other mem- memory that comes to mind when I think of people saying that we should like be thinking about our statistics and making decisions based on like an informed analysis and not just using rules. The first thing that comes to mind is a conversation that I had with Jennifer Tackett in grad school. So <laughs> she's consistent. <laughs> um, and of course, I mean, I've, of course, I agree with her. And I think, um, yeah, I think that it's sort of cheap to often like fall back on these like rules that should apply in every case. Um, but also I see the, the appeal of having universal rules for some things. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I think you could take this, I think it would be real easy to knock this down by taking it too far. And so I think that there there need to be principled exceptions. I think, you know, whatever the standard rule is should only, you know, get us so far. I mean, one of the things I liked about the abandoned, I mean, the abandoned statistical significance paper actually said that there's a place for statistical significance. So the name was a little bit, you know, they were kind of saying, don't use it as your one and only rule and, and whatever. But you know, like I think over and above, like, okay, we've we've used whatever thresholded thing, then looking at the effect size and looking at other sort of components of the evidence um, uh, are also 
important, you know, bearing in mind if you've thresholded that that, that kind of biasing effects and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, no, I think it's really, I think it would be really easy to to take too far and say that, you know, what I'm not saying is every single time, no matter what, we're not allowed to think about it. Um, it's rather that like, you know, having something we all agree on, and then and then if you want to make an exception, you can justify that. But yeah, right. I have another question, which is, um, how do you think that people should use p-values when they're evaluating papers that they're reviewing or editing? I think it's one of the sources of signs of p-hacking if the p-value is just below 0.05, but there's a lot of other ways to look for signs of p-hacking. And by just below, I mean anywhere between (laughs) 0.005 and (laughs) (laughs) 0.05. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I think the oh, so there's the p hacking question. I, I I also Alexa took yours as in the more conventional sense, just like how do you? I, I mean, I think to me, like I would love for our field to get away from results based decision making on whether to publish, mm-hmm. but where it's useful is in like do the claims in the discussion section to right. the conclusions match up to the evidence and and that's where i think that uh you know either a thresholded judgment or a continuous judgment or a threshold but then also look at the effect size you know look at p-values and bayes factors which god forbid you know (laughs) (laughs) mixing those two things together but yeah i think uh to me the the way to judge the strength of the evidence is not to decide whether it should be published or not, but to look at whether it's calibrated to the conclusions. And so, you know, when people say, well, God loves 0.06 as much as 0.05, it's like, yeah, and God hates both of those because they're super inconclusive. (laughs) Like 0.001, great. 0.98 with, you know, a large sample or whatever, that's going to be very uh, tight confidence interval around zero. You can draw a conclusion. But Mm 0.06, 0.10, 0.20... And 0.04, 0.03 are like often going to correspond to very weak evidence for either, right? You just don't know. It's like very inconclusive. Mm -hmm. It's the least satisfying. So then it's like unless the conclusion in the paper is we did the study and we think it's really important to do and to accumulate data, but we're no better off drawing a conclusion than we were before. But we think these data and these results should be part of the literature. I might be open to that. But any other conclusion is going to be hard to pull off. So, I mean, maybe this is getting off topic a little bit, but would you be interested in publishing that? I think in some cases, yes, Um, but it would have to be really hard to collect data or there's like a good reason why you don't do the obvious thing, which is, okay, well, then collect more evidence because we don't or we aren't any better off epistemologically than we were before. But I think, Mm -hmm. yeah, I I would much rather publish that than something where the conclusion is not calibrated. Yeah. And calibration, I think, is really the main thing that we struggle with is like, it's fine to sometimes get a 0.04 or 0.08 or whatever, but then you should be like, ah, shoot, I didn't get an answer. You know, like that's the appropriate reaction most of the time with some Mm -hmm. exceptions. But yeah, I mean, and this is where to sort of go back to like the effect sizes, if you're looking at effect sizes and confidence intervals, so not just point estimates, but you're looking at effect sizes in an interval kind of sense, when P is 0.04, 0.4, 1.0, and 4, the effect size almost always, the interval is going to include so small it's trivial and shouldn't matter yeah. on on one end, right? That's essentially, if, you, if it's a 95% interval and P is 0.04, then it's going to be just skating above zero and it's gonna be like okay so a reasonable conclusion is that the data are consistent with the parameter being so small it might as well not exist anyway you know and 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 also and on the other and it's going to range from that to like humongous and world-changing and that and if you're paying attention to that you're like okay these data are consistent with trivial small to humongous and world-changing so they're not telling us much new information and of course how much new information they're telling can also be quantified in a Bayes factor in other ways. But um, yeah, so I, I mean, I think that's where like, if you're going to look at p-values for sort of calibrating conclusions, you, you, they're a starting point, they're not a stopping point. And, and people, I don't think you can escape learning how to evaluate effect sizes and, and other kinds of, of things. Uh, the p-value, you know, is just one thing you learn from the data it's not yeah i mean it's crazy how often i see people interpret null results as evidence of absence without doing something equivalence testing or Bayes yeah, Bayesian yeah. approaches or whatever so yeah we're, we're really not good at like 
separating from the p-value from like what do you have evidence for and what can you rule out and so on can i go back to a question from before that i don't think you two weighed in on do we is knowing the answer to what's the probability of this result given the hypothesis the one that the frequent disapproach answers is that an interesting question would you rather yes is it is it less interesting than the probability of a hypothesis given the data um so I guess, yeah, it's a two-part question. One, do we care at all about the probability of the data given the hypothesis? And do we care more about the probability of the hypothesis given the data? My answer to the first question is yes. Uh, like, I think it's interesting information to know for sure. And it tells us, like, something like what we want to know. Um, I'm less sure about my answer to the second question about the my relative interest in those two. Um, I want to say that, like, knowing that the probability of the alternative hypothesis given the data sounds like exactly what I want to know. Um, that sounds better to me, but I, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Maybe Sanjay has a better answer. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's a really tough question because I think so often people are erroneously assuming that what they're learning is probability of the hypothesis that it's you know my first thought is like the times then when i and other people mix those things up and i'm like but that doesn't mean that it's not interesting right so like you know i think and and people sometimes say like p-values don't map map onto the way normal people think but i'm not sure that that's true i think we think both ways in everyday life like sometimes we think you know Mm -hmm. i i have this hunch i wonder if it's true and other times we say i had this assumption but this shit's really weird if my assumptions are right. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I think that happens in day-to-day life, I think life the dream too. example is a good example. I think that's how we think. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so I think, and I think we're not, we're, we're I, th- I also think, like, a lot of statistical formalizations, none of them really match onto, like, right. I think when every, in everyday life, when we think about, is this hypothesis true, we're not thinking conditional on some prior or something right. like that. Maybe intuitively or I don't know, but yeah. but not explicitly. Yeah, I mean, I think- anytime that people say, like, when you use the term, like, what are the chances of this happening? I think you're basically talking in p-values, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think for me, if I'm honest, I think I would say the probably the hypothesis given the data is, is more interesting to me, but I, I think that probably the data given the hypothesis gets too negative of a wrap. I think it's not uninteresting. Yeah. But my problem, so the way I, this morning actually in class, somebody asked me, an undergrad asked to me to explain the idea behind Bayes a little bit. And so I explained the difference between the probability of the data given the hypothesis and probably the hypothesis given the data. And I didn't say this to them, but my what I kind of feel when I think about those two options is I feel like I can either get a a, a good answer to a not great question, which is what a p-value tells me. It's like, it's not exactly the question I want to know, but it's a good answer. If I don't cheat, if I follow the rules of an HST, I get a probability I can trust, or I can get a bad answer to a really good question. So if I really want to know the probability of the hypothesis given the data, I have to make like some assumptions that make me quite Mm -hmm. uncomfortable. And that's partly like the area of research I'm in, that I don't have strong priors and I'm kind of squeamish about priors but i could imagine other areas of research or life where i would feel very comfortable making mm-hmm. prior putting setting priors so i feel like i'm yeah those are my options given my research questions and stuff is a good answer to a not great question or a not great answer to a really good question yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. i mean i think one of one of the things that i I like conceptual. So, I mean, one one thing is, I think what we want to know every day is something impossible, which is we, you know, like what's we just true? want to know is my is what's yeah, true. Yeah. yeah, is my theory right? What's true? And it's like that's impossible. So, so it's already like what we want is is out the window. I do what I do like conceptually about Bayes is the way it separates the idea of evidence from conclusions, mm-hmm. um, so that you know, because that really for me really maps onto my thinking, which is like. Sometimes I, you know, it's like, I've concluded that the sky is blue because my crystal ball told me so. And it's like, yeah, I believe the conclusion, but I, you know, it's a totally invalid way of reaching it. Mm -hmm. And the sort of the Bayes factor idea and more generally the idea of like likelihoods and updating, like to me that that maps onto something when I'm evaluating a paper, when I'm evaluating a piece of science, I want to know, like, I I do want to know what should I believe at the end of this? But I also, when I'm evaluating a piece of work, I want to know, does this move our knowledge forward? Mm -hmm. And, 
even if, if it moves us forward, but I'm still not sure at the end, it's worth doing. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't move us forward, but I'm sure at the end anyway, mm-hmm. it wasn't worth doing, mm-hmm. you know? And so, so that's, uh, yeah, uh, I, that's what I, what's appealing, like just sort of my personal kind of preferences of how I like to think about science, mm-hmm. um, that, that there's that mapping there. Mm-hmm. Cool. Have we covered everything we wanted to cover? Good God, no. <laughs> Part one have we exhausted our audience's uh, <laughs> We could have an, an entire podcast that nobody would listen to, yeah, but right. we'd never run out of things yeah. to talk about. Yeah. Alexis, Samin, and Sanjay talk about p-values again. Yeah. <laughs> Part 74. I'm pretty nervous about my uh, attempt to talk about Bayesian stuff. I'm pretty sure the Bayesians will not think I know what I'm talking about, which is accurate. But... I can fool my undergrads, and that's what counts. Yeah. <laughs> at the end of the day, whose who's smiling faces do you have to look at? No. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, awesome. I think, uh, yeah, I think this was good. I, I feel like we did have a bunch of stuff. We said we should talk about this when we talk about P-Valleys that we didn't get to, but I think this was really interesting. So, mm. yeah. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for, for listening. And uh, this has been The Black Goat. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you.